As James comes to the close of his epistle, he stresses the importance of restoring those who have wandered from the truth. Restoring straying saints is a responsibility, as I mentioned just a moment ago, to all who are the children of God. And yet it is one that is so easy to neglect, and very sadly today is neglected in most cases. The great apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, beginning there in verse 1, he said, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The purpose of our lesson this morning really is twofold. Number one, to impress upon our minds the importance of engaging in this work of restoring those that have fallen, and secondly, to suggest how that we might carry out this very, very important work. Before we do, though, I think if we would have some understanding concerning the condition that the person that has fallen is in, maybe if we truly understood their condition and we understood where their fate is and what is lying ahead of them, if we could understand just exactly where it is today that they are at with regards to how God looks upon them, then maybe we would do something about it. You know, sometimes we turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to those who are fallen, even those that are among us, and they're gone now, and sometimes we fail to recognize just how serious that is. Let's notice this condition, though, as described in the New Testament by several. First, let's notice the condition of the fallen as defined by James. James said that those that have been enlightened by the glorious gospel, in essence, have obeyed the gospel, have come from the waters of baptism to rise and walk in newness of life, and have served God for a time as they should, if they fall, James says that their condition as defined is those that are in danger of death. You know, death is a separation. We understand that. And in the New Testament, the Bible describes two forms of death. One of which is one that you and I will always, uh, or you and I will do one day, if we live longer than it is that the Lord comes back, then one day you and I have an appointment with death. You and I will cross the chilly waters of death one day, and there's no way, whether we want to or whether we do not, there is no way that we're going to get away from that appointment if the Lord does not come back first. But the separation that we're talking about when we talk about physical death is the separation between the body and the spirit. And regardless of whether we want to or whether we do not, we have very little to say about that type of separation. But that's not the one that we're speaking of this morning. We are talking about spiritual death, which is a separation between a man and the Almighty God for all eternity. You know, in James chapter 5 and verse number 20, as we read just a moment ago for our hearing, James says, Let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. You know, on many occasions, the Bible declares that we ought to make proper and good decisions in our life. 
Did you know that if you don't want to go to hell, you don't have to go? You have something to say about that. You have nothing to say about physical death and that physical separation, but you have everything to say by way of your obedience and by keeping God's word. You have a lot to say regarding whether or not you are going to be separated from the presence of the Almighty God for all eternity. That's wonderful to think that I can have something to do in my life with whether or not I'm going to be lost or whether or not I am going to be saved. And so that's wonderful today that I understand that as long as I don't fall, as long as I don't turn my back on the teachings that are found in God's word, and as long as I comply completely with the things that are written therein, I don't have to lose my soul and I don't have to go to hell and spend an eternity away from the God of heaven. That's a wonderful thing. But I want us to understand those that turn back. James says death awaits them if they don't return. But secondly, one who has wandered from the truth has also wandered from the source of forgiveness. I think this is so important for you and I to understand that when one turns their back on the Lord, he removes, he wanders away from the very source of forgiveness. God does not listen to those who have stopped listening to him. In 1 John chapter 1, beginning there in verse 6, the Bible says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. Thirdly, though, one that's in this condition is separated from the blood of Jesus Christ that would cleanse a man from his sins and therefore is in danger of receiving the wages of sin. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's notice, though, this fallen condition as depicted by Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning there in verse 20, it says, for, it, for if after that you have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after that they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. I freely admit that I probably don't understand all there is to know concerning this idea. I do know, though, that Peter and Jesus also spoke of, when one turns back, they spoke of this idea worse than if one had never obeyed the Lord. Now, I freely admit I don't know everything there is to know concerning the torment or the punishment being greater for one who turns back than one who has never known. Now, we understand that one that's going to be lost can be lost because of disobedience, and one can also be lost even though they were ignorant of what the Word of God teaches. For example... 
The Bible says at the time of uh, ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. When the Bible says it commands all men everywhere, it is talking about those that are ignorant of God's word, those that have never heard God's word, and it's also referring to those that are going to be enlightened by the gospel to stay the course all the days of their life. But I want you to notice what Peter says concerning this. It's like a dog that vomits and goes back and eats it. That's how disgusting it is in the eyes of God when one would forsake the Lord after they've come to know him and obey him. It's like a pig. You know, I can't imagine why you'd wash a pig. But say, for example, you wash a pig and they go back to wallowing in the mire. You know what that is to me? That is a waste. That is a complete waste of the time that you spent in washing that pig. And that's what it's like when one's been washed in the blood of Jesus, had their sins forgiven, and have turned back. Peter says that the latter is worse for them than the beginning. Notice what Jesus said in the 12th chapter of the book of Luke in verses 47 and 48. Jesus said such a person is in danger of a more serious punishment. Now this is the part that I freely admit I don't know everything about. But this I do know is we need to ask ourselves the question. Is Jesus saying that one that is has turned their back on the Lord and gone back to the ways of the world... Is that person going to have greater torment or greater punishment? Because in Luke chapter 12, Jesus talks about more stripes and so on. Is that literal? Does that mean that a person that goes back into the ways of the world and forsakes the Lord, is that person going to have it worse in a devil's hell than somebody that died ignorantly? I don't know, but this I do know. Number one, there's only one Gehenna hell as described in God's word. That is the place where the Bible describes it was a place that was prepared not for man, it was prepared for the devil and his angels that were cast out of heaven, for we know that Satan and a third of the host of heaven were cast out of heaven because of their prideful disobedience and sin, and therefore they are now in pits of darkness awaiting the resurrection, and they're going to be cast into hell of the lake of fire. That is the place that the Bible describes as a place where the worm dieth not. A place of outer darkness and yet eternal flames. A place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. I don't know how anything in the world can get worse than the general picture that the Bible gives us of Gehenna hell. Let me talk to you about what some scholars said about this. One said that there are different degrees of punishment. Others say there are no degrees of punishment. One said, though, that the reason that it's greater or worse for one to go back is because when they go back, it's harder for them to return. Their heart becomes hardened. Their heart becomes calloused. We know that the catalyst for restoring someone has to be the word of God. It's the same catalyst that had them obey the gospel at the very beginning. And so when the word of God works on the heart 
And when we receive it with meekness, when we receive that word with readiness of mind, then it can help us to grow and produce fruit if our hearts are good and honest. But what happens when it gets hardened because of sin? One scholar said that it's simply because it's harder to return. Well, I don't know all there is to know about that, but let me just say this. Here's something that I'd like to add. There's something that the Bible pictures when one is lost that never leaves you. And that's your memory. Wouldn't that be awful? Now think about it this way. If someone never obeyed the Lord because of ignorance, they'll be lost according to the Bible, not me. But unfortunately, they're going to be cast into the same devil's hell. But they didn't know any better. They did it ignorantly. They'll still be lost. But let me just say this. What about the person that has obeyed the gospel and knows the truth and made a conscious choice to go back out into the world? Now that person's going to know for all eternity they didn't have to be there. Let me say it this way. If you participate in a sporting event or in a contest and that's what the Christian life is it is running a race the object is to win now that's why we do it now if we do our very best and we don't make it and when we don't win it still hurts the loss still hurts but what if you lost and it was your fault what if you lost the race and lost the prize because you were a coward and you gave up. Like they say, a coward dies a thousand deaths. For the rest of your life, you'll know I gave up and that's why I didn't win. I'm going to tell you something. That's got to be worse. It has to be worse. It has to be worse to be in a devil's hell and know for eternity I didn't have to be here. But because of my choices... I am here. That's got to be worse, folks. The condition also is described by the inspired writer of the book of Hebrews. You know what? I believe that to be the Apostle Paul. And he said that when one goes back, when one forsakes the Lord, forsakes the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of, of some is, when we forsake that and turn our back on that, Paul said there remains no more sacrifice for sins. You know, in Hebrews 10 and verse 25, a much quoted passage of scripture where it talks about not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now then, whether that day approaching is talking about the end of time, the destruction of Jerusalem or the first day of the week really doesn't change what the crux of the meaning is. Don't forsake the assembly, because when you forsake the assembly, what happens? There remains no more sacrifice for sins. Now, I'll tell you something. <clears throat> the Hebrew brethren could understand just exactly what Paul meant when he wrote that, because they understood that under the old law, there was repeated sacrifices that were made continually. They can always look forward to another sacrifice. And so if they sinned, there was always another sacrifice that would be offered for the sins of the people. But notice this. Jesus Christ died once 
He became the supreme sacrifice once. And there's no more sacrifice that's going to be made for the sins of the world in the future. And the only way that a person can be saved who has forsaken the Lord is to come back to the same sacrifice and the terms and conditions therein. Come back to what they know. Return to the one sacrifice. You know, uh, you know when the Bible talks about in the book of Hebrews that when one is, has fallen, it's impossible to restore such an one? You know, that's really quite simple. It is impossible to restore such a one. I think that's what this is talking about. There's nothing that I can say to that person that's any different than what they've already been told. There's nothing new that I can come up with. The only way that they can be restored is to restore themselves based on the conditions that are outlined in God's word. They've got to come back to it. But what about the responsibility that you and I have then? Does that remove us from responsibility if they must restore themselves? More on that in just a moment. Also, also uh, along that line of no more sacrifice for sins, understand this too. The blood of Jesus Christ no longer is available for the one that is in that fallen state. Let me just say this. We know how we contact the blood of Jesus. We know we contact the blood of Jesus at baptism, and when we do, now we reap the benefit of what Christ did for me and for you. If we don't do that, we don't contact the blood, and therefore the blood that was shed on Calvary does us no good. But what about the Christian from that point forward? What happens when you come out of the waters of baptism? What happens for the rest of your life? I'll tell you this. You and I need for the rest of our life the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus continually works in our life. And every single time when we're Christians after baptism, when we ask the God of heaven to forgive us for the sins that we have committed, that precious blood of Jesus continually works and washes our sins away. I'm going to tell you something. One that is gone back to the ways of the world no longer has that blood available to them while they're lost and while they're gone. The Hebrew writer says that all that remains for those that are in that state is to be eternally lost in a devil's hell and will face the one in judgment whose mercy they despised. Finally, along this line, what about what Jesus declared about this state or condition? Jesus said that one in this condition will be removed from his presence. Revelation 2 and verses 4 and 5. Also, Jesus said he would expel such from his presence. Revelation 3 and verses 15 and 16. You remember when Jesus said that so long ago? You remember in the Revelation letter he said that I would that you were either hot or cold because if you're lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. You know, you can look at it like this. People drink hot coffee and people drink cold coffee, but there's nothing more disgusting than a lukewarm cup. I hate to over-trivialize that, but that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. He said, I would rather have you in your Christian life be hot or cold because you're not hot or cold. If you're lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
I wonder, I wonder how many folks that are even among God's people that have never walked away from their service in terms of they've never stopped coming to services, they've never stopped coming, they act as though they're Christians, but I just wonder how many of them are not hot and cold, but how many of them are lukewarm. I just wonder. Sometimes we think that as long as we don't leave the Father's house and we don't forsake and turn our back on the worship, that everything's okay. You remember that's the parable of the prodigal? What a beautiful parable it is. The crown jewel of all the parables of Jesus. Evangelio and evangelium. The gospel within the gospel. How beautiful it is. A parable that Jesus taught a long time ago that shows more love or more about the love of the Father than it does about the Son. But don't forget this. There's another Son in there too. There are two. Sometimes we think the first one was a prodigal because he left. No, he was a prodigal because he was wasteful. That's exactly what that word means. But both of them were wasteful. Jesus pictures two kinds of sinners, penitent sinners and proud sinners. But they're both sinners. We talk about the fact, the first one, well, he left the father's house. He's gone. That's obvious. But what about the brother or the sister that's lukewarm? What about the brother or the sister whose heart is not right with God, but are still worshiping among us. What about them? Listen, folks, they need to change too. They need to change concerning the word of God, and they need to understand that they need to turn their back on the worldly things. They need to understand that going through the motions is not enough in living the Christian life. I wonder how many of us, though, we just go through the motions, but our heart is not what it ought to be. The Lord is not what he should be in our life. Priorities come into play. Other things are more important. We're lukewarm. We must change. The point is this morning that when we truly understand the spiritual condition of our friends and loved ones who have strayed from the truth, it should move us to do something about it. The question, though, is how can we carry out this all-important responsibility? Study with me now, restoring the fallen. Number one, it requires special attributes. It really does. The Bible's clear on some attributes that is required for you and I in trying to restore the fallen. Number one, the Bible says, Paul said in Galatians 6 and verse 1, that when one is going to fall, we have a responsibility to go out there and try to help restore them. He says, first of all, here's the first attribute. He says, those that are spiritual. What do you think he meant by that? What did Paul mean when he said, those that are spiritual? Is he talking about those that like to talk a good game? How about those that kind of think that they're spiritual? Maybe they think that they're holier than someone else. Is that what he's talking about? No. What he's talking about is those that are bearing fruit in their life, those that are truly going out and doing the things that they ought to do. They are the those that are producing the fruit of the Spirit in their life. It is manifested in their life. It is not just manifested in the way that they talk about themselves. 
Oh, no. This is talking about a person that is living the life that they ought to live. I'm going to tell you something. If you are not living the life that you should live and you go out and try to restore such an one who's living wrong, they're going to say, I'm going to tell you, the only difference between me and you, we're both wrong, but you haven't, you haven't left yet. You're still hanging around. You're a hypocrite. He said, be spiritual. Those that are spiritual, those that are producing the fruit of the Spirit in their life. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 22, says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Let me just say this, that unqualified personnel need not apply for this job of restoring the lost. Do you know why? Because there's another job for them that they need to be very busy and diligent about. You know what job that is? Fixing themselves. I preached a sermon here several months ago. I know not everyone heard it. I didn't, it wasn't on a Sunday morning. I preached a sermon on, is it wrong to judge? Matthew 7. What did Jesus mean on the great sermon on the mount? Some people quote those passages of scripture that Jesus said so long ago and say, see, don't judge. Jesus pictures it like this. He says, don't look at your brother's eye that's got a speck in it when you've got a log or a beam in your own eye. You know what people say, though? People say, you see, Jesus said, don't judge at all. Leave everybody alone. We've all got our logs. We've all got our beams. We've all got our specks. And they say what Jesus was saying is get the log or the beam out of your own eye and leave your brother alone that has the speck. That is not what Jesus said. What Jesus said was, get the beam out of your own eye so that you will be equipped, prepared, ready, and able to help your brother get the speck out of his eye. Is it wrong to judge? No, it is not. It's wrong to judge wrongly with the wrong attitude and the wrong spirit. Jesus said this, though, if you're going to help your brother with his Christian life, you better clean up your own backyard first. You will have no influence at all if your backyard is a mess when you look over the fence to someone else. The whole idea is, is not sitting around casting judgments. The whole idea is to help each other get to heaven. You and I have a responsibility to each other. We not only have a responsibility of taking the gospel to the lost, but we have a responsibility to each other to help each other get to heaven. That's what he said. And when we restore such in one, we save a soul from death. How beautiful that is. So we need to understand that so we can help others. Secondly, though, here's another attribute. We have to have a spirit of gentleness. Galatians 6 and 1. We are, as one man put it, we are performing delicate soul surgery. And it's certainly not a time to misuse the sword of the Spirit. A soul that's going to be restored is going to be restored by the power of God. Let us not with our wrongful attitudes take the thing that's going to help to restore them and going to be the catalyst in their life to help them see their need to come back. Let us not misuse this because our attitude is wrong. A spirit of gentleness. Thirdly, a constant sense of self-examination. You know, it's so much easier for me to examine Ryan 
I'd rather do that. I'd rather examine him. I'd rather examine somebody else than examine me. I'm certain that you would rather examine someone else because when you look at yourself, it's hard sometimes to be brutally honest with yourself and understand what you really are. Like the old saying, you are what you are. Sometimes that's hard to do. But when we are going to go out and perform this very important work of restoring the fallen, it requires a sense of self-examination that goes on and on and on and on all the days of our life. If we don't have the attitude, we need, need not to have the attitude, let me say, that it could never happen to me. You know, I think sometimes folks do that. A brother or sister is weak and stumbling. And sometimes we go to them with the attitude and they get the attitude from us that we really think it could never happen to us. Bob talked about that not long ago. Well, maybe it is long ago, maybe a year or so. But he said, anyone can fall. That's fact. What's needed, though, is all the rest of us helping each other so we don't. But anyone can fall. And when we have the attitude, it could never happen to me, look out. Be very careful because it can. Fourthly, though, we must have a willingness to bear one another's burdens. I'm going to tell you, folks, this involves an expensive time and expensive energy to help those overcome their faults. Our responsibility is not fulfilled by simply pointing out our brother's wrong. Oh, no, I have to invest something in order to do this properly. I have to invest of myself. I have to invest my time. I have to invest my patience. I have to do that in order to be one who is willing to bear my brother's burdens. Number five, it requires humility. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning there in verse 24, the Apostle Paul, writing to the young evangelist there, said, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by his will. Folks won't accept correction and advice from someone that's arrogant. They really won't. You know, in many cases, it requires sometimes that we confess our own faults. Oh, now wait a minute. I thought we were talking about restoring somebody else. Why would we confess our own faults? How could that be applicable? How can we apply that practically in our life? Right here. We can all say this. I would imagine we can all say more, but I know we can all say this. You go to your brother or your sister, you want to break the ice? Here's the best way to do it. I want to tell you how sorry I am. I want to tell you how bad I feel that I've waited this long to come and see you. Admit that. I want to tell you how awful I feel and how sorry I am that three months went by before I ever picked up the phone when you didn't come to services. There are folks that are not among us this morning, brethren, that have missed services. I wonder, I just wonder, how long will it go 
and how much time will pass before you'll pick up the phone and call them. I'll tell you something, that applies to all of us. It really does. The very best way that you can not be an arrogant person, be a humble person, confess your wrongs. Tell somebody, I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm telling you right now, I'm doing the best I can to live the Christian life. I stumble, yes I do, but I'm trying. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to give up. I'm concerned about your soul. I just want you back. And so does the Lord. You're important to us. And I'm so sorry I've waited this long to tell you. A spirit of humility is required. Sixth, though, we must have an ample knowledge of God's word. We need to be able to teach and apply God's word to the situation because it is important that they respond to God's word and not simply on our own views or opinions. Number seven, it requires patience and long-suffering, the same kind that we receive from God for our faults, the same kind that the Apostle Paul showed toward the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. But also remember that if repentance is not forthcoming, we can only wait for so long. Listen, I'm not saying, what I'm telling you is this. We need to do what we can. If someone rejects it, there's really nothing further we can do. If we go back on repeated times and we try to restore one and they don't want to do it, there's really nothing more that can be said. They know the truth. They know what God's word says. And they know that in order for them to be saved, they got to come back to what they already know. There are folks that won't even return our calls that have decided to go back out in the ways of the world. I understand that. Hear what Paul said about that, though. 2 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 1, Paul said, This is the third time I am coming to you in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. I told you before and foretell you, as if I were present the second time and being absent now, I write to them, which heretofore have sinned, and to all other, that if I come again, I will spare not. Sometimes folks don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear you. They don't want to have you around. But it doesn't remove our responsibility to at least try. We've got to try. We've got to make an effort. Number eight, I'm going to tell you something. If we don't have this, you can forget about the whole rest of it. If we don't have number eight here, then we will not have any impact whatsoever. It doesn't make any difference. You can quote the entire Bible verbatim. It won't matter. And that is this, a sincere demonstration, that's the word, demonstration of love at all times. They have to understand that. Sometimes we get afraid to talk to people. I'm going to tell you something. How can they really lash back at us in any kind of scary way if we tell them we love them? If they know that you're there or you're calling them because you love them and you don't want them to lose their soul, how are folks going to get mad at that? They may not want to live right, but they're not going to get mad at that. They may be mad at the fact that they're not doing what is right, and they have, may have a million excuses, but they're not going to be angry with you for loving them. But I'm going to tell you this. We must have a demonstration of love at the time of rebuke and also at the time of repentance. Both times. 
We must demonstrate that demonstration of love when they are needing to repent. And when we rebuke them, we must do so lovingly. And understand this. When we go and try to restore one that's fallen, it's not because we want to be right or win an argument. It's because we want their soul to go to heaven. That's the end result. That's the reason why we do that. But when they come back, folks, we need to show extra love to them. We sure do. And not bring up those things of the past. 2 Corinthians 2 and 4 for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. Notice, that's before the rebuke. Notice after. Verses 6 through 8. Sufficient to such a man is the punishment which was inflicted of many, so that contrary wise you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. That's after they repent. That's what they need, folks. You know, the work of restoring or correcting saints, I know that's not a pleasant thing. That's sometimes difficult. I know that. I know it takes a tremendous amount of effort. But you know, it brings potential great joy. It brings joy both in heaven and in our hearts. Hear what Jesus said about one who would repent and come back. Notice the joy in Luke 15 and 7. Jesus said, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. But you know, in our hearts too, there's great joy, wonderful joy. Third John 4 says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. You know, it really comes down to two things. That's really it. Number one, do you really love God? And number two, do you really love your fallen brethren? I want you to ask yourself that question as I read this passage of Scripture. 1 John 3, 16 through 19 says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are, all, we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. You know, if this works for the world's goods... Doesn't it work even greater for spiritual things too? You know, we've said this so many times. If everyone that has once been a member of the body of Christ just in this community alone would show up, this building wouldn't hold us all. That's a fact. There's work to be done. There really is. There's a lot of work to be done. We need to open up our eyes to those that have need and open up our eyes to those that are lost who have turned their back on what was right. You know, people ask me, it seems like on a constant basis, they ask me, why, why did you decide to spend the rest of your life preaching the gospel? People want to know sometimes what, 
what it was, what was the motivating force or motivating factor. I'll just say this though, I will say this to you. I enjoy this more than anything that I can possibly even describe to you is working with the church here. Preaching the gospel has brought me more fulfillment than anything in my life before of a, of a, of a job task that I would have in my life. That is all true. I truly love the gospel and I love the souls of man and all that. But I'm going to tell you something. There's a motivating passage of scripture that started this whole ball rolling. And it haunted me for years. You know the one I'm talking about. Ezekiel chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. When I say unto the wicked, thou shalt surely die. And thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. The same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Yet if thou warn the wicked and turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Again, when a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because thou hast not given him warning, he shall die in his sins, and his righteousness, which he hath done, shall not be remembered, but his blood will I require at thine hand. How many folks have we met that may have obeyed the Lord if we would have talked to him about it? How many folks would have come back that had fallen astray if we'd have talked to them about it? Folks, we've got to tell them. We've got to. We've got to spend the rest of our life telling. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information, or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.